The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell, Christ our living head will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe and trust in Him. I will trust in my Redeemer, sing of His love that lasts forever know His hope and sure salvation I will trust in Him Oh, the world falls around me I rest and know that He has found me Christ, the rock, is my Welcome all to Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, Pastor is an acrostic which stands for Preaching All Salvation Through One Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Jesus. The English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by Scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome to Pastor Yeshua. In the previous episodes, we began to ask and answer various classic questions about death, hell, and the afterlife. Our goal was and is to provide correct definitions and a biblical worldview framework from which we can biblically define and understand various words and terms commonly used regarding death, hell, and the afterlife which oftentimes cause some confusion. More importantly, our goal is to allow God's truth and reality to provide tangible hope and joy for our eternal future, for those who would by His grace be called to do so. In the previous episodes, we identified 14 terms for definition and discussion. At this point, we have largely defined and discussed the first 13 terms, including death, the intermediate state, sleep, the grave, Sheol, Hades, Gehenna, paradise, Abraham's bosom, hell, 
Purgatory, and the Lake of Fire. In this episode, we continue with questions, definitions, and discussion regarding the remaining term, heaven, according to a proper biblical world and life view. Number 14. Heaven. There are basically one Hebrew and one Greek word which gets translated as heaven. In Hebrew, we have the word shemayim, which means heaven, heavens, firmament, sky, abode of the stars, the abode of God, which is used some 420 times. In Greek, we have uranos, which means heaven, heavens, expanse of the sky, dwelling place of God, and is used 284 times. Based upon the words and their definitions, we get the clear idea that heaven is an upward, outward direction relative to the earth. The literal definitions of these words encourage us to think that heaven can be associated with the air, the sky, the atmosphere, or outer space, or perhaps somewhere else. However, as we look at the general understanding of the Bible and survey scripture for the use of these terms in context, we see that the Bible distinguishes at least three different heavens. Number one, the first heaven is what is called the firmament or sky that covers the earth. This is the realm of the birds and clouds that surround the entire earth. Two, the second heaven is where the stars, the sun, and the moon reside. This is the space beyond the earth and it covers the entire universe. Third, we have the third heaven, which is unseen and is regarded as the residence of God, including Christ Jesus. This is the location of the throne of God and the holy angels. Now, we can find obvious and convincing evidence for the belief and existence of the first two in Scripture. The third option is what we are concerned with. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2 through 4 is the most obvious example where Paul talks about himself in the third person regarding his conversion experience on the Damascus Road. Here he writes, quote, I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago, whether in the body I cannot tell, or whether out of the body I cannot tell, God knoweth. Such a one was caught up to the third heaven. And I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell, God knoweth. How that he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words, which is not lawful for a man to utter, unquote. Notice here that the Greek word uranos, heaven, and the Greek word paradise, which we examined in episode 6, are identified as one and the same. We will discuss this more later, but for now the important thing is that the heaven that Paul was caught up to cannot be defined as number one or number two above. Instead, we are talking about something generally unseen to human eyes. 
So while scripture repeatedly acknowledges the first two, it also teaches the existence of the third, which is the topic in view when we are talking about salvation, eschatology, and the final state of those who are redeemed by Christ. We can all grant the fact that there are innumerable secular explanations of heaven which we could doubtlessly spend countless hours detailing the various viewpoints of heaven. Whether we use the label heaven or something else, throughout human history, almost every culture in every place has some variation of place where people and or their soul slash spirit go when they die. Typically, the location in question consists of some form of reward, an end to the physical and emotional sufferings of this present life with sickness, poverty, war, inhumanity, and the various evils which that person or culture perceives. The definitions of heaven range from an actual physical geographical location to another dimension, to a totally different realm, or to a state of mind. Fanciful embellishments, such as those by Dante Alighieri's Dante's Divine Comedy, wherein he imagines nine levels of heaven, serve as ammunition to the skeptically minded, which they use to dismiss and or mock the underlying realities. However, from another perspective, the general acceptance and mention of the concept and reality of heaven in every culture, despite the cosmetic differences from culture to culture and time to time, is perhaps the best validation that the basic truth of such a place or state is a reality. Nevertheless, we want to look, as we have with everything else, to God's Word, the Bible, as the ultimate authority for how we should define and understand heaven. So, returning to the Judeo-Christian biblical view of heaven, we see that wherever we go, from cover to cover within the Old and New Testaments, the Apocrypha, or any other intertestamental literature, we see the clear and present expectation and acceptance of heaven and or paradise. While the exact language and descriptions of heaven vary, the central message common to all is that those who see themselves as God's people his elect, his children, find themselves in a return to intimate fellowship and acceptance in his presence. Indeed, much of uh, the imagery parallels the situation in the Garden of Eden prior to the fall, which is likely why heaven is synonymous with the term paradise. Surveying scripture, we see descriptions of heaven such as having its streets paved with purest gold, its gates being made of pearl, a river of life clear as crystal flowing from God's throne. The tree of life will be in its midst. The walls of the city will be adorned with every kind of jewel, emerald, onyx, amethyst, topaz. The presence of the Lord will be its light, and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. 
All of these descriptions and more are characteristic of the Jewish apocalyptic genre, metaphors and analogies used to describe realities which are beyond finite human comprehension, much less being suited to description by human language. The inability of human language to convey the things of God is best summarized by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. Quote, but as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard, neither hath entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. Unquote. In the end, as we search for the answer as to what is heaven, the answer is that heaven is the final state, just as the lake of fire is the final state for Satan the beast, i.e. Antichrist, the false prophet and the goats, i.e. those who deny Christ and his atoning work. Heaven is likewise the final state for the sheep, those whom God has chosen, whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life and who have been redeemed by Christ's atoning work. It also appears that heaven is the restored Garden of Eden, or paradise, where those who are reconciled to God may once again fellowship with him. In fact, the close correlation between heaven and paradise causes us to pause and to query a question. We know that God created Adam and Eve and placed them in the Garden of Eden where he fellowshiped and talked with them in the cool of the garden? We know that this garden was a paradise. The question arises as to whether this situation was paradise and could have remained so if Adam and Eve had not sinned? To put it bluntly, perhaps Adam and Eve were in fact in heaven to begin with. Next, we know that post-Genesis 3, as the functioning reality of death began for each and every person. We know that in keeping with our studies to date, that those who died physically had their body go into the grave to await the resurrection, while the soul-slash-spirit of these dead went into the intermediate state in Sheol-slash-Hades, once in Sheol slash Hades, the soul slash spirit of the dead remained conscious and went into one of two compartments or dimensions where, depending on their faith and righteousness or lack thereof, they either suffered, were tormented, or they were comforted. It would also appear that this area where the faithful righteous were comforted was called either paradise or Abraham's bosom. Further, we postulated that Christ's descent into the lower places was essentially a necessary salvation rescue mission where he led the captives of paradise slash Abraham's bosom to ascend with him to heaven. 
while they were in paradise being comforted, Scripture nonetheless calls them, quote-unquote, captives. If they were faithful enough to get to paradise and be comforted, why are they captives? You say they looked forward to a Messiah. So, why are they captives? Frankly, the best analogy is that of an irrevocable trust. An irrevocable trust guarantees that those who are named in the trust will inherit certain things. However, even though the trust is always legal, it does not go into effect until the death of the one creating the trust. In this case, God created a trust, if you will, that those who would have faith in him, his promises, and his coming as a Messiah would inherit resurrection from the dead, eternal life, and fellowship with him. Those named in the trust by God from the foundation of the world in his book of life must, however, wait until the one writing the trust, i.e. Jesus, died and rose again to put the trust into effect. The moment Jesus put the trust into effect, those who died prior to his death, as well as those who died after his death, would now be immediately in the presence of the Lord to receive their inheritance. Those who died in faith prior to Jesus' death were captive in the intermediate state, waiting for the trust to be in effect. This answers the question we put forward in episode 7 as to whether or not the transformation and or the change accomplished by Christ's atoning work was one which redefined or changed paradise and or Abraham's bosom from the status of the intermediate state to that of the final state. We should remember that this question is not a new one. In fact, the issue of death and those who have died in faith in Christ was also one of the first century apostolic church. The question was so great that Paul addresses the question in his first letter to the Thessalonian church. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18 say this, quote, But I would not have you ignorant, brothers, concerning those who are asleep, that you be not grieved even as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will also bring with him all those who have fallen asleep through Jesus. For we say this to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not go before those who are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then 
we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall ever be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words." Unquote. Paraphrasing, Paul is saying, I don't want you to be ignorant, upset, or without hope concerning those who are physically dead. As Christians, we know that Jesus physically died and rose again. In the same way, God will deliver everyone who has physically died in Christ by his power. On the basis of God's authority, I also tell you that anyone who is now alive and who remains alive until the coming of Jesus again, those will not precede the resurrection of those who have physically died in Christ. Why? Because when Christ comes again, those who have physically died in Christ will be physically resurrected first. Next, we who are still physically alive and in Christ will be caught up, i.e. raptured, together to meet the Lord in the air. So, take these words and comfort one another. So, based upon this and other scriptures, it would appear that there is a group of people who have physically died with active faith in God, whose physical bodies and or remains are present on earth in the grave or a tomb at the time Jesus returns. The majority of biblical, Jewish, rabbinic, and, and theological thinking is that with a minority of exceptions, the physical bodies of those who have died with active faith in God and His promises will remain in the grave until this event portrayed in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13-18. through 18. One example of an exception can be found in Matthew chapter 27, verse 52, which says, Quote, the tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, unquote. So, the answer is that, yes, it would appear that, based upon Scripture, that paradise, i.e. Abraham's bosom, was moved and becomes identical to heaven. We know for a fact that Christ would or will have no more need to descend into the lower places to preach to any captives as to his identity as Messiah because from the point of his resurrection moving forward, his identity as Messiah is a past tense, accomplished fact of history. Even prior to Christ, those whose soul slash spirit goes into paradise slash Abraham's bosom, go there on the basis of faith in God and his promises, as well as a faith in the coming Messiah. So, those living with faith in Christ as Messiah after his death and resurrection would simply go directly to be with the Lord in heaven, as is stated by Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 and 8. For those who are in Christ, 
The rapture signals the greatest single accomplishment by God, second only to Christ's atoning work since Genesis 3, namely the long-awaited victory by Christ over death for those who are alive at that time. Paul comments on this future event in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 through 57. Quote, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruption shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Unquote. Here it should be noted that the victory over death is only for those who are in Christ and are raptured. Scripture reveals that after the rapture, the Antichrist will start his reign and eventually many people will die either by having come to faith in Christ and are martyred for their faith or those who die as unbelievers by whatever means. In any case, those who are in faith in Christ after the rapture go to be with the Lord according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8. Those who die outside of faith in God go to Sheol slash Hades to await the final resurrection where they are eventually, as stated in Revelation chapter 20, verse 14, cast alive along with death, Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet into the lake of fire for all eternity. So, to summarize, prior to Jesus' atonement on the cross, paradise and Abraham's bosom were the inheritance of heaven placed into a trust awaiting the death and resurrection of Christ for those named in the book of life. After Jesus' resurrection, heaven, or if you like, paradise, or Abraham's bosom, is the inheritance placed into trust awaiting the physical death of any person whose name appears in the Lamb's book of life. Heaven is both a spiritual and a physical place in which those who are redeemed by Christ's finished work on the cross and who have a relationship with Christ by faith, through faith, experience complete and everlasting joy, blessedness, thankfulness, praise, and purpose. 
it does severe injustice to heaven, to limit heaven, to some idea of disembodied spirits floating about, playing harps, and sitting around on clouds. Whatever things we think we can imagine to accomplish here, to find positive, constructive purpose for our existence, will be dwarfed in comparison to the unlimited purpose we have before us in heaven without the constraints of sin, fatigue, aging, sickness, and time limitations. Thus, heaven is the final estate which exceeds all description and all comprehension of human logic and or imagination. With all these terms now being defined and discussed, let's address one or two questions and or objections proactively as we conclude. Question. Don't we have beliefs in hell, the afterlife, paradise, and other terms which you have mentioned, which we can find in every culture going back to Egypt, the Canaanites, Babylon, etc. If we can find these beliefs thousands of years before the writing of the New Testament, then doesn't that prove that the New Testament writers and or Christianity stole these ideas from pagan and or secular cultures? And if so, doesn't that prove that Christianity itself is a myth? Answer. To be candid, the answer in no small part will be guided by the starting point and the priori biases which we all bring to the table. If, for example, we start with evolution, no God, and man as the ultimate authority for everything, then, yes, all religions would simply be the philosophical, mythical ramblings of man from culture to culture, time to time, based upon personal opinion built over time into supposed reality. If... On the other hand, we start with God and his word as ultimate authority. Then we see just the opposite. Remember, we know via God's final revelation that all of the terms, death, the intermediate state, sleep, the grave, Sheol, Hades, Gehenna, paradise, Abraham's bosom, the lake of fire, and heaven were always there as realities. God knew about all these realities, but man became more familiar with these realities through the vehicle of God's progressive revelation. It is critical to remember that human history, knowledge, and our progressive revelation understanding of God did not and is not happening in a vacuum. Since Genesis 3, we know that Satan has become involved in the stream of human events. Satan lies, manipulates, counterfeits, and does everything he can to undermine God's cosmic plan. 
man himself also has the innate tendency to do the same for his own reasons. Since we know that God had a plan from the beginning which consisted of truth, meaning, morals, reality, justice, beauty, and significance, we should not be shocked to learn that Satan and or mankind would not take these various truths, whether purposely or accidentally, and corrupt, copy, counterfeit, change, eliminate, and or add to in order to achieve their own goals. So, in fact, since there was a heaven and a lake of fire from the beginning, we should expect that Satan and man would take these realities and over time conform them to their own preferences. As a practical matter, we know that during the time of the Tower of Babel, a large segment of mankind was centered in one area, with one language. In keeping with our theory, when the people of Babel had their language confused into multiple languages, it would be completely logical that whatever words and terms that they formerly had for death, the intermediate state, sleep, the grave, Sheol, Hades, Gehenna, paradise, Abraham's bosom, the lake of fire, and heaven, would then be splintered into many multiple tongues and dialects. Further, as the people dispersed, the terms and ideas of these realities would disperse with them. Over time, the process would compound itself with embellishment, corruption, and confusion. In the end, looking backward from the present, we would expect to see the very phenomena which this particular question and objection poses. Namely, we would expect to see multiple cultures over multiple centuries in multiple places around the world all of which have variations of the basic concepts of death, hell, and the afterlife, but with different titles and different particulars. So in the end, the presence of lookalike counterfeits, copycats, or similarities now or a thousand years ago does not disprove the Bible or Christianity any more than the presence of one or a thousand counterfeit dollar bills disproves the existence of a genuine dollar bill. All it tells us is that the original must first exist in reality and be valuable in order for Satan and or man to be motivated to counterfeit it. Question 2. Assuming even assuming we agree that there is a good documentation to prove that the terms you have listed exist and that the Jews and or the Christians believe in these things, the fact is all of these things are largely unseen. So how can you prove they are real? Answer, not unlike the previous question, sufficiency 
or insufficiency of proof is an outcome for which the answer is predicated on the starting point and the priori biases which exist. We all have them, and we need to acknowledge that. The issue is that the starting point between Mr. Ash, the atheist, the skeptic, and the humanist, who is typically the one asking for and demanding proof, and the one who is using God and his word as the starting point, have a starting point, a ruler, and definitions, all of which are irreconcilable. Essentially, proof, which is synonymous with winning the debate of atheism versus faith, is no different from a parlor board game, let's say Monopoly, where Mr. Ash demands and insists that he already owns Park Place. He has loaded dice. He has a perpetual get-out-of-jail-free card, and the rules say that Mr. Ash never has to pay money when he lands on other people's property. Well, under this scenario, winning the game, i.e. proof, is impossible because his priori bias rules, which he deems as the only rules which make quote-unquote proof, i.e. winning, is now impossible. This is exactly the case in point with God, the Bible, as well as all other terms named so far. In every case, Mr. Ash has already decided, before the debate ever begins, that the rules of philosophical materialism to which Mr. Ash adheres to reign supreme. The rules of philosophical materialism say that only those things which the five senses can perceive are real. Anything which you cannot perceive with the five senses, which would include God, the spirit, soul, miracles, the supernatural, etc., are not real. They are simply chemical interactions in the brain which we interpret individually to be real. Additionally, Mr. Ash demands that whatever he is going to entertain as being evidence for the real must be something which he can physically drag into a laboratory, examine, and be able to repeat the process of examining with the same results over and over again in order to qualify the results as being factual and the item in question as being real. Conveniently, for Mr. Ash, or perhaps better stated by design, Mr. Ash cannot and will not examine non-material issues because, according to Mr. Ash, non-material issues do not exist and cannot exist. Because non-material issues do not exist and cannot be examined under Mr. Ash's predetermined exclusive laboratory, there can never be any proof. However, the truth is that Mr. Ash's theory of materialism is just that. It's a theory. It's an assumption. The proof that it is a theory and an assumption, and in fact is no more real or provable than God, 
is that one cannot drag the theory of materialism into a laboratory and examine it. One cannot taste it, touch it, feel it, smell it, or hear it. Since all of this is true, then according to Mr. Ash's own priori bias, materialism must, according to its own rules, be judged not to exist, not to be real. One must then ask the question then, if I utilize a theory and or a assumption which cannot itself be proven to build the countless other assumptions which then become supposed facts, what word could best be used to support the end result of this process? I submit the word is faith. Yes, whenever and wherever anyone makes assumptions and then pronounces those assumptions to be true and proceeds to build other theories and assumptions which rise to supposed fact based upon the initial assumption, you have faith. The greater assumption, the greater the faith. Once we then begin to live our daily lives and conduct our behavior in, in accordance to even the most well-meaning assumptions, we give birth to religion. Yes, traditionally, religion is reserved for the assumption or faith in a supreme god or deity. However, when we assume, for example, with complete and utter certitude, despite the fact that there has never been a human being or any scientist who has been in every corner of the universe, in every dimension, who has all possible knowledge that there is no God, then by default, that person has essentially said that they are God. That person has just deified themselves or their knowledge or the process as being God. And indeed, characteristically, as with the worship of any deity, when anyone dares to question the God of science, the God of humanism, the God of materialism, the God of human reason, those involved with that religion typically scream cries of heresy and blasphemy, or they ridicule and mock, just like any good devotee of traditional religion. However, to answer the question, there is proof, but it is likely not going to be the proof which will change the heart of Mr. Ash. There are, in fact, many proofs, but the best proof is to be found in the various 300 prophecies listed within the Old Testament, minimally 100 years before Jesus was ever born. As was fully discussed in a previous episode entitled, Jesus the Messiah Has Come, a mere 48 of the 300 prophecies contained in the Old Testament is completely sufficient for anyone 
who is honest and open-minded to come to the unavoidable conclusion that the Bible is God's Word. Only an all-knowing, all-powerful God could reveal 48 specific prophecies regarding the identity and accomplishments of the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, in such detail and specificity at least 100 years prior to that person ever being born. Only an all-knowing, all-powerful God could then accomplish each and every one of the 300 prophecies to the letter without fail. With this in mind, once we come to the conclusion that only God could do this, then we can also safely assume, just as Mr. Ass assumes things, that if God is faithful and trustworthy in these matters, then we may also safely have faith in believing that he will fulfill his other promises. If God is trustworthy in this matter, then he is also trustworthy in matters regarding death, the intermediate state, sleep, the grave, Sheol, Hades, Gehenna, paradise, Abraham's bosom, the lake of fire, and heaven. In the end, heaven is the reward for those who believe and have faith in him who is faithful. The lake of fire is for those who rebel and despite how much proof or evidence will not have their heart softened. In the end, the here and now is God's test to separate the sheep from the goats and to determine an eternal destiny which we one and all have, whether heaven or the lake of fire. The issue is not a lack of proof. The issue is an unwillingness to look at and trust in the proof that is there. Father, I thank you that from the beginning it has been your plan, your desire, that you would fellowship with your creation. Lord, Help us to see and confess that it is we who have departed in rebellion from your plan to serve Satan, the flesh, and this world, and that it is our nature which prevents us from fellowship with you. Lord, draw us now, convict us, change our hearts, Give us a new nature, conformed again to your likeness, that we may fellowship with you. Lord, redeem us from Gehenna, from the lake of fire, and from the just punishment which we deserve. We ask and thank you for your gift of grace and mercy, which we do not deserve, and that you would, by and through your Son, Jesus, impute your righteousness and finished works to our account. Sanctify us day by day into your image of your Son, 
Let us be steadfast, immovable in the sure knowledge, the hope and the joy that the inheritance of eternal life is prepared for us now and forevermore. In Jesus' name, amen. This concludes this episode. Now, if you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I would encourage you to send me an email at pastor underscore Yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. The world.